Chapter Three of China and the Chinese by Edmund Plochut, translated by N. Donvere. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Holly Rushick. Chapter Three. General Chen Zidong and his book on China, the monuments of China, those the Chinese delight to honor, a Chinese heroine, ingredients of the cup of immortality. Avenues of colossal statues and monsters in the cemeteries. Imperial edict in honor of Kuo Fan. Proclamation of the 18th century. The emperor takes his people's sins upon himself. Reasons for Chinese indifference to matters of faith. Lao Tzu, or the old philosopher. His early life. His book, the Tao Te Ching. His theory of creation. Affinity of his doctrine with Christianity. Quotations from his book. General Chen Zidong, who lived so long in France and married a French lady, although rumor says he already had a wife in China, wrote a very interesting, but far from exhaustive book, with the title, The Chinese Described by Themselves. He said nothing in it of the worship of great men and of certain animals in his native land, nor did he refer to the way in which acts of virtue and courage are rewarded there. I will now endeavor to supplement the information given us by the learned general. In addition to the statues erected in China, as in the chief cities of Europe, to every man who has in any way distinguished himself, triumphal arches are set up in memory of those who have done heroic deeds, whether in the privacy of home life or in public. These arches are known as pylons, or honorary portals, and as a rule they have three arcades— sometimes made of very fine stone worked with considerable skill and surmounted by a roof of varnished canvas with the corners gracefully turned upwards as in the fashion in china there are two kinds of monuments in the celestial empire one of very ornate the other of simple construction widows who refuse to marry again virgins who have kept their vows of chastity till their death men who have distinguished themselves in science literature or philosophy Diplomatists, who by their skill in deception have mystified their colleagues as well as foreign ministers, and thus won a reputation for great wisdom. Soldiers who have fought valiantly for their country. Women who have committed suicide after a lost battle. Wealthy men who have given much away in charity. Families who have lived for many generations in one house. Old men who can assemble in the home of their ancestors four living and healthy representatives of four generations, are honored by the erection of honorary portals, which are also set up in general commemoration of any victory or series of victories in war. In the center of the larger and grander monuments are inscribed three words, signifying faith, submission, and justice. Monuments to Widows The imperial government of China goes out of its way to honor certain acts of abstinence, such as the refusal of a widow to marry again, erecting a monument to her when she has been true to her resolve till she is fifty years old, and has lived alone for at least twenty years. I must add that the emperor himself contributes forty piostras, or about eight English pounds, to the expense of erecting monuments in honor of women who have been true to the memory of their husbands. He also gives a roll of silk to each inconsolable widow. And what is more, he has written a poem on widowhood. 
who shall say after all this that the chinese are not jealous of marital faithfulness monuments to widows are more imposing than any others and bear an inscription signifying chastity and purity an affianced couple who though engaged in early childhood have been prevented through some local rebellion or through a foreign war from accomplishing their union before they are fifty years old are honored in a similar manner a monument with the inscription chastity and filial piety may be erected to glorify a chinese mother who having borne one child takes a vow never to have another in order to be free to devote herself to the needs of her poor parents similar honor may be done to young boys or girls who allow a piece of flesh to be taken from their arms or thighs under the belief that this flesh mixed with certain ingredients will do their suffering parents good the imperial government both approves and rewards the bloody sacrifice the motive of which is that filial love held in such high esteem throughout the whole celestial empire on certain monuments with three arcades an inscription may be read signifying joy and gladness to the benevolent monuments such as these are erected in honor of some chinese who has brought up orphans as if they were his own children or of some rich man who has given a large sum of money toward the making of roads or bridges a kind-hearted employer who pays poor men for collecting the bones scattered about the cemeteries and giving them reverent burial is also often rewarded by the erection of a monument to his memory those of the celestials who distinguish themselves by charity but who do not spend large sums of money receive tablets of wood on which are inscribed pious sentences composed by the son of heaven that is to say the emperor many of these tablets which answer the same purpose as did the greek stela are to be seen in the rooms known as the halls of the ancestors in the houses of the chinese especially those of the wealthy mandarins they constitute regular patents of nobility and are not won by favor or intrigue as are so many titles in europe but by real acts of charity performed by their owners three brothers who have all passed their eightieth year and are still in good health can have a monument erected announcing this fact and so can husbands or wives who attain the age of one hundred a chinese heroine at amoy in the province of pichalai are two monuments with arcades erected to the memory of the chinese women who flung themselves into the wells of their houses when they heard the shouts of the english soldiers and sailors entering the town this act of despair is explained by the fact that the chinese themselves give no quarter when they enter any place as victors the men are strangled and the women become the slaves of those who take them prisoners in the very center of canton is a temple remarkable alike for its size and beauty it was built in honor of the memory of a great chinese lady who in december eighteen fifty seven committed suicide when the english and french took the city this heroine the wife of pan yu one of the chief magistrates at canton learned that the allies already occupied the northern portion of the town put on her most magnificent apparel and summoning all her servants gave to each a parting present she then killed herself by drinking what the bonzes call the cup of immortality a very strong poison containing amongst other ingredients opium and the droppings of peacocks this potent poison has often been given to emperors under pretext of making them immortal 
but really with a view to getting rid of them. There is yet another mode of honoring the illustrious departed. The children of civil and military officers have the right of erecting avenues of colossal figures opposite the tombs of their parents, these figures representing giants or monsters. The length of the avenues and the size of the figures is regulated by law, according to the grade of those they are intended to honor. The state itself pays for these quaint memorials, unless the necessary sum has been raised by voluntary subscriptions. On the death of any illustrious soldier or politician whose firmness has added to the stability of the throne, the emperor always hastens to give publicity to his grief at the public loss, and his gratitude for the services rendered by the deceased. Here is a specimen of an imperial proclamation such as is frequently used. An Imperial Edict The deceased, Quo Fan, was a man of great knowledge, of varied talent, of profound penetration, of stainless morality, and of incorruptible honesty. He left the schools with the title of doctor. His merits were discovered by Emperor Talcon, who promoted him to the rank of Chinger, colonel. In the reign of Xionfeng, he was commissioned to raise the army in Hunan, and after the battles in which he was victorious over the Taiping rebels, he received the praises of the emperor and the thanks of the whole country. It was then that my predecessor appointed him to the viceroyalty of the two Qiangs and named him Generalissimo of the imperial forces. During my own reign, I made him chief secretary of state. He became to me a second self. He was my life, my heart, my backbone. I therefore bestowed on him the title of hereditary count, and I authorized him to wear the double peacock's feather. I had hoped that he would live long for me to heap fresh favors upon him, so that the news of his death has filled me with sorrow and dismay. I wish that according to custom, three thousand tales should be spent on his funeral. A jarful of wine shall also be poured out on his tomb by General Mutenga, chief of the Manchu garrison at Nanking. Two tablets of stone bearing his name shall be erected, one at Nanking in the Temple of the Loyal and the Illustrious, the other in Peking, at the Pantheon of the Wise and Good. Footnote. A tale is worth about five shillings. I wish the life of Quo Fan to be written and given into the care of the imperial historiographers that the memory of a life so beautiful may be preserved in the national annals. His son will inherit the title of Count, and I will give him dispensation from an audience. I appoint Ho Ching, Lieutenant General of Kyangsu, to be instructor of the children and grandchildren of the deceased. A token of my munificence will be given to them, that they may know how my throne remembers and honors a loyal servant. Let this edict be respected. The homage rendered to heroes, wise men, and philanthropists has its origin in the religious principles inculcated by Chinese philosophers. These philosophers were very numerous in China in past days, and it is only possible to give an account here of the most celebrated of them. Some 23 centuries before the Christian era, the Chinese simply worshipped one supreme being, first under the vague name of Xian or heaven, later under the more personal name of Ti Shen, or the Great One. Gradually, however, 
This monotheism was succeeded by the deification of the heavenly bodies, each with a priest of its own, whose business it was to advise those responsible for the government of China. These priests, who became in course of time extremely powerful, won their influence through the study of astronomy, but as that influence sometimes ran counter to the wishes of the emperors and bid fair to supersede their power, they eventually suppressed the entire hierarchy. In Europe, this interference with the spiritual guides of the people would have aroused a passion of fanaticism and have resulted in massacres and religious wars, but nothing of the kind occurred in China, for there the martyr's palm and crown are never coveted, and religious zeal never produces the terrible results with which the student of European history is familiar. Truly, the celestials are to be congratulated on the calmness with which they accept what they consider the inevitable. A wise emperor. The following characteristic epitome of the religious ideas in vogue amongst the Chinese in B.C. 1760 is taken from a proclamation issued to his people by the emperor then on the throne. Shen Ti, the supreme ruler, has given reason to man, and if he listens to its dictates, his spirit will exist forever, but if he does not, he will revert to nothingness. The ruler of Hia continues this old-world proclamation, extinguished in his soul the light of reason, and inflicted a thousand ills upon the people in all the states of the empire. Oppressed and unable longer to endure such tyranny, the people made known to the spirits of high and low degree that they were unjustly dealt with. The eternal reason of heaven gives happiness to the virtuous and misery to the vicious and depraved, and this is why heaven has visited Hia with all manner of calamities to make his crimes manifest to all. As a result of this, all unworthy though I be, I have felt it my duty to conform to the unmistakable and terrible decrees of heaven. I dared not leave such great crimes unpunished, but I did dare to take a black bullock and serve as the sacrifice I felt bound to offer. I ventured to appeal to the august heaven and to the divine ruler of the earth. To each of you I have assigned the states he is given to govern. Beware of obeying unjust laws or adopting unjust customs. Do not fall into the mistakes which result from idleness, nor yield to love of pleasure. By observing and obeying wise and equitable laws, you will be following the commands of heaven. All is sifted in the heart of Sheng Ti. The crimes any or all of you commit will be visited on me alone. But if I do evil, you will have no part in it. In this quaint address is shadowed forth the beautiful idea that the emperor is responsible to God for his people, though they are not responsible for him. A similar thought is apparent in the following quotation from a kind of penitential psalm, which the same emperor is said to have composed on the occasion of a famine which decimated China during his reign. Feeling that he must have done something to arouse the wrath of heaven, he cut off the long hair and nails, which are the special pride of the highly-born celestials, and laying aside his imperial robes, wrapped himself in the skins of beasts. Thus disguised, he went forth alone to a mountain and vented his grief and remorse for having, one, neglected to instruct his subjects as he ought to have done, two, for failing to win them back to their duty when they had departed from it, three, for having built grand palaces and incurred other expenses by unnecessary building, 
4. For having too many wives and loving them too much. 5. For caring too much for the delicacies of the table. 6. And lastly, for having lent too readily an ear to the flattery of his favorites and of certain high officials of his court. Lao Tzu. Another significant and noteworthy fact brought out alike in the proclamation and confession of this enlightened ruler is that there is no idea of any intermediary being necessary between him and God. It is the same to this day. No priest intervenes between the emperor and Sheng Ti, and the bonzes who spend their lives studying the moral precepts of Lao Tzu and Confucius are merely thinkers who never interfere in affairs of state or with the religious teaching of the people. Hence the total indifference of the Chinese to matters of faith. They believe in free will and act in accordance with their belief. In the 6th and 7th centuries before our era, the Chinese empire was in a condition little short of anarchy. The wealthy were depraved, the poor were steeped in misery, and everywhere injustice and oppression were the rule. The emperors frittered away their lives in their harems, giving no thought to the welfare of their people. It was time indeed for a reformer to arise. And the first to appear was the great Lao Tzu, who is supposed to have been born about 604 BC, 50 years before the yet greater Kung Fu Tzu, or, as he is called by Europeans, Confucius. Life of Lao Tzu The state of the celestial empire, when Lao Tzu first began to inculcate his peculiar doctrines, was corrupt in the extreme, greatly resembling that of the Roman Empire in the time of Nero, when the disciples of Christ preached equality and contempt for riches, striving to win souls from the awful depravity and sensuality of the heathen world, and to teach them to aspire to an ideal and divine love and to the immaterial joys of the Christian heaven. Lao Tzu, who was to inaugurate the great reform completed later by Confucius, began his public career as curator of the library of the king of the Chiu in what was then the city of Lab, not far from that of Yang in the present province of Hunan. His real name is supposed to have been Erli, but that of Lao Tzu, signifying the old philosopher, has entirely superseded it. Whilst keeper of the royal books, he is said to have read many of the works of the Indian philosophers, and from them to have imbibed the principles embodied in his own immortal work, called the Tao Te Ching, the exact meaning of the title of which has been so much discussed, but is generally translated the Book of Supreme Reason and Virtue. If, as many well be, the word Tao is identical with the Greek Theos and with the Latin Dios, both of which mean God, then the proper rendering of the Tao Te Ching is the Book of God and of Reason. However that may be, it is certain that its author was a true theist, rightly considered the founder of theism, which is one of the three doctrines held in equal honor by the celestials, the other two being Confucianism and Buddhism. Many legends have gathered about the memory of Lao Tzu, and the young Confucius is said to have met the old philosopher more than once. The former is reported to have said after an interview in Peking with his forerunner, Today, I have seen Lao Tzu, and can only liken him to a dragon who mounts aloft in the clouds, I cannot tell how, and rises to heaven. Another story is that the older Chinese philosopher traveled in India, 
and there met Pythagoras, the great mathematician and believer in the transmigration of souls. But, if so, there is no trace of the influence of the Greek in the Tao Te Ching, which must have been written before its author left China. As a matter of fact, very little is really known of the life of Lao Tzu, but some idea of his peculiar views can be obtained from the following quotation from his book. God, he says, is spiritual and material, so that he has two kinds of existence. We emanate in the first instance from the former or spiritual nature, to later enter into the second. Our aim upon earth should be to return to the first or spiritual nature. To succeed in this, we must refrain from the pleasures of the world, control our passions, and practice boundless charity. It is the advocacy of this boundless charity which justifies us in comparing the doctrine of Lao Tzu with primitive Christianity. Before, however, we give proofs of this affinity, it will be interesting to note how the old philosopher proves his assertion, that all the material forms of nature are but emanations from the divine. The Tao Te Ching. In the 25th section of the Tao Te Ching, we read, Beings of corporeal form were made from matter which was at first in chaotic condition. Before the heaven and the earth came into being, there was nothing but a profound silence, a boundless void, without any perceptible form. It existed alone, infinite, immutable. It moved about in the illimitable space without undergoing any change. It may be looked upon as the mother of the universe. I am ignorant of its name, but I call it the Tao, by which I mean supreme and universal reason. Constrained to make a name for it, I designate it by its attributes, and call it grand, lofty. Having recognized that it is grand and lofty, I add that it is all-embracing. Having recognized that it is infinite, I designate it as unlike myself. The earth is ruled by heaven. Heaven is ruled by the Tao, or the universal reason. Universal reason is a law unto itself. Footnote. Lao Tzu speaks of the supreme being as it, not he, and implies that his Tao, whatever he signified by it, may have existed even before God. These quotations cannot fail to give an exalted idea of the principles advocated by the Chinese sage. They even shadow forth, to some extent, the doctrine of the gospel, which was not preached until 600 years after the death of the author of the Tao Te Ching. But the extract I give now, from the 49th section of the book on supreme reason, is yet more strikingly significant. The heart of a holy man is not inexorable. His heart is in sympathy with the hearts of all other men. A virtuous man should be treated according to his virtue. A vicious man should be treated as if he were also virtuous. Herein is wisdom and virtue. Again, in the 16th section we read, To be just and equitable to all is to have the attributes of God. Having the attributes of God is to be of the divine nature. To be of the divine nature is to succeed in becoming identified with the Tao, or the supreme and universal reason. To be identified with the supreme reason is to win eternal life. Even when the body is put to death, there is no need to have any fear of annihilation. So much for Lao Tzu's belief in the immortality of the soul. Now note in what touching terms he expresses his compassion for the unhappy and the unfortunate. 
If the people suffer from hunger, it is because they are weighed down by taxes too heavy for them. This is the cause of their misery. If the people are difficult to govern, it is because they are oppressed by the work too hard for them. This is the cause for their insubordination. If the people are indifferent to the approach of death, it is because they find it too difficult to obtain sufficient nourishment. That is why they die with so little regret. End of chapter 3